Welcome back to another episode of the Bright Brains Podcast. Today, my guest is Joe. He is a marine scientist. He is, has a background in, uh, well, I guess I'll let him introduce himself and tell <laughs> us who he is. <laughs> All right. Uh, my name is Joe. Uh, I'm a marine biologist. I've been working in the field for about five years, mostly focusing with shark species, large predatory species. Uh, did a little work with sea turtles, manatees, and raising some salmon up in Alaska. All right, Demet. So how'd you get into this field of work? I've always been really into this field. And growing up, I watched every ocean documentary I could get my hands on to. Um, I started scuba diving from a young age, even though I lived in a landlocked state. Um, but the ocean's always been kind of what I wanted to be around and set my life around. So when I went to college, I decided to take the plunge and do marine biology and really get my feet wet into the system. And I did internships every summer. One of the internships was actually tagging sharks off the beach with NOAA. And um, that was a lot of hard work. It was from about six o'clock to two or three in the morning and then going back and working a nine to five during the summer just to make money. So it definitely hasn't been an easy route, but if you're willing to work hard, I think anyone can get into this field. So what is NOAA? Uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. Most people know them as the uh, hurricane trackers, but they gotcha. also do the uh, federal fisheries research and monitoring. All right. So what all goes into like tagging sharks? I, I feel like that must be a pretty dangerous thing to do. Or is it not dangerous at all? Um, I've been bitten by more turtles than I have sharks. So take with that information what you want. Um, but with sharks, you know, we were doing a land-based operation. So we were catching them on hook and line and then bringing them on to about, you know, about a foot of water so we could safely deal with them, taking some skin samples, putting numerical tags, and then taking weight and length measurement, and then all that data was then sent to the lab in NOAA, and they would keep a database on all that information. And that was the summer internships I, were do I was doing. So what are the things that they're trying to learn about sharks? Um, just kind of migratory movements, growth patterns, because if a shark is recaptured with the same ID, then you can see in that period how much it's grown. Um, seeing what kind of seasons those sharks are in the area specifically and seeing how that affects the fisheries. That's pretty interesting. You said you also did the same with turtles and manatees. Yeah. Um, after I graduated, I worked with a research team and we continued doing shark research and that was from a boat. And then we were also doing uh, sea turtle research and that research was kind of a predator prey relationship study so seeing how the sharks and sea turtles were interacting. And then yeah. after that, I moved to Alaska, and this was during COVID. And I lived on an island with other biologists, and we were raising salmon in a hatchery until they were big enough to be put in the ocean to support native populations. And I did that for about a year. And then I moved back down to the lower 48 and started working with manatees and doing uh, manatee um, 
a little bit of everything. I was working with their habitat mostly, seeing how um, humans are impacting their habitat, seeing what kind of impacts we have as visiting humans, as far as like ecotourism that, you know, manatees are a big industry where I'm at right now. And it brings people from all around the world to come see them. So seeing how people swimming around in the habitat is impacting it. So you were living in an island in Alaska, raising salmon. What <laughs> island were you on? Um, I was on two different islands. Uh, the first one was Evans Island in Prince William Sound. So raising salmon and you were guys were releasing them into the wild to mm -hmm. support the population. Is mm -hmm. salmon population dwindling in the wild? And why is yeah. that? Um, there's multiple factors. Overfishing will always be kind of the main driving force. A lot of people like to eat salmon. Fishermen mm -hmm. like to catch salmon to make a lot of money. And populations haven't been able to keep up with the demand. Um, obviously, habitat loss due to climate change is a big driving force. We see salmon, you know, they might start migrating to other places to see and try and have their habitat come back. Um, those are the two main impacts, and that's almost every impact with marine species right now is overfishing and then habitat loss. All right, let's delve into that. The fishing industry, is it having that huge of an impact on the oceanic life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm a hypocrite because I like to eat fish. And yeah, same here. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people like to eat fish, but... I think the best way as just an everyday person, you can do your research on where your fish is coming from, who's catching your fish. There's companies that will provide um, a detailed list of where that fish was caught, the company that caught it and how it was processed. Yes, it, it does cost a little more. And I know not everyone can afford that luxury. And I totally understand. I can't always afford that luxury. Um, but Trying to just be as informed as possible is definitely the best thing we can do to kind of pump the brakes on this overfishing. There's also, we're working on trying to get more of these um, open water fish, how to raise them in a stable environment and kind of support the population like we're doing with salmon. You know, when it comes to the fishing industry, I always wonder, why don't they just like, build some massive aquarium somewhere <laughs> and like just you know grow the fish in captivity kind of like how we do cows and chickens yeah so you know I, people do that with salmon you know we have salmon farms there's a lot of pushback that the salmon is mutated and there's a whole list of genetic issues that can arise from that and it's expensive to do that there's um People say the meat's not as good when it's not wild caught. Um, they, they were, we're putting certain weird chemicals into these fish, which I worked in the hatchery and we never did anything like that. Uh -huh. um, so the, it, it would be a great thing, but there's a lot of pushback against it right now. Uh, I know some countries are looking into, um, they have these massive like bait, circular nets in the ocean and they're doing research on raising like mahi and these more pelagic open water fish are there people who are trying to do anything to like limit the amount of fishing yeah so you know that's a big thing noaa does that's why they track different fisheries and you have support from 
your state and federal government, everyone's tracking all that fisheries data, like down here um, in Florida, the state tracks a lot of the um, different saltwater species and tries to get an accurate count from anglers and the sports fishermen, as well as the um, charter fishermen and people who sell the fish. So what are some other key challenges currently facing marine ecosystems? Um, habitat loss. So with sea level rise, we're seeing certain species uh, move around to habitat that they're not used to because the habitat that they once lived in is destroyed due to climate change, human impacts, even natural impacts will cause fish to move around and they'll adapt. But we're seeing major changes at a speed where the species aren't able to adapt in a timely manner and they just get wiped out. Um, but yeah, habitat loss has to be probably the front issue that a lot of marine biologists are looking at. So what's driving sea level rise? Um, climate change is the temperatures warm up. We're seeing the melting of the polar ice caps and that's adding water into the sea and that's raising it up. Hmm. So, and that's causing habitat loss because I would think if more water was being added, wouldn't that expand the habitat? So um, let's say for the manatees, they mm -hmm. live in freshwater springs. They rely on freshwater springs in the wintertime. They come out of the Gulf and then go into these freshwater springs. We're seeing as the sea level is rising, these springs are becoming more, has have more salinity in them. And that's uh, decreasing the amount of freshwater flow from those springs. So that's a major issue. You're seeing mangrove come in and mangrove is salt tolerable species. And a lot of areas want mangrove, but in other areas that mangrove wasn't native to, it's almost invasive in the way it's moving into these freshwater systems too. Um, I mean, coral sea coral loss due to the rising temperatures of the seawater is another major issue. What are some things that are being done to try and like mitigate this or reverse this kind of thing, if anything's being done? Yeah, um, obviously from a, a global standpoint, governments are trying to cut back on emissions and propose more green energies that would slow the climate change and all the other impacts. And then also um, locally, people are taking precautions on how we're participating in the environment, how we're interacting with wildlife and trying not to trample certain plants that certain species are reliant on um, are just a couple of ways that we're trying to mitigate that habitat loss. What about pollution? I often hear a lot about, yeah. what do you call it, uh, microplastics? Yeah, that's a whole another rabbit hole where I've heard things as far as probably everyone's starting to have microplastics in them. It's almost in inevitable on how much mm -hmm. we're consuming on a daily rate. I When I was doing the sea, sea turtle stuff, I would do monitoring in the morning and we were going up and down the beach looking for sea turtle nests. And you would see washing up on the beach um, plastic water bottles that had sea turtle bites in them. Uh. Um, and I know a lot of times when they do necropsies and dissections of these marine life, they have uh, plastic already ingested 
And I think we, sh we need to obviously limit the use of plastics. Um, and I think it, it comes down back to the scientists on how we've communicated that and the issues that come along with that. Cause a lot of, we obviously a lot of people are pushing against it and they don't want to use, um, they don't want to change their ways. And I, I get that, but, and it's hard to, for humans to look past their lifetime or their kid's lifetime. And that's always been a major issue with conservation and trying to preserve the environment is we're talking on hundreds of years of timeline where these issues are really going to become catastrophic. And it's hard for me sitting here thinking about my day to day or what I'm going to do at work next week to actually care that much about not using a plastic straw at the restaurant and things like that. So those are always going to be the, the human aspect and tackling how we communicate these issues with the public has always been an issue, I think, with the scientific community. Yeah, my question is, how does so much plastic end up in the ocean in the first place? You know, I hope that's not a silly question because no. I know when I put my plastic in the trash or the recycling bin, I thought it would go to a landfill or get recycled. recycled. Are they dumping this stuff in the ocean or? Not on purpose, I'll say. So when you take your plastic to a recycling center, it gets ground down into these small pellets called nurdles. Mm -hmm. And then these nurdles are put in bags and then put on transport ships, big cargo ships. And I mean, these things have fallen into the ocean. You can go on to almost any beach and kick your foot around and you'll see these small plastic beads come up. And I know a lot of uh, universities are tracking the beads and where they're flowing out to and where they're flowing from. Um, that's one issue. Um, other countries don't have the luxury to be as climate sensitive as a lot of Americans do. So they don't have the luxury of having landfills and people they can pick up the garbage off the curb and some of their trash will fall into the water. It'll fall into the rivers. The rivers will flow out into the ocean. And then we have plastic in the ocean. Mm, man. I know you've probably seen that viral video where they capture this sea turtle and like oh, yeah. they pull a, a straw out of its nose. Yeah. That was definitely a catalyst for an awakening of how people see single-use plastics. Yeah. I don't know why we use straws anyway, you know? <laughs> like I've when you're at home. a metal straw, or when I'm at home, I'm just drinking out of the glass. <laughs> yeah, same here. When you're at home, you just drink out the glass. Why can't you do that at a, at a restaurant? Just drink out the glass. Yeah. But are there any attempts to, like, try and get all this plastic and trash out the ocean? Yeah, there's definitely uh, nonprofits working towards that. Um, as far as like government wise, I'm not aware of anything. I know of a couple of universities down here that are tracking, um, certain drainways and spillways. And also you have to think about when a hurricane comes through, how much destruction that brings, but then that's also washing that all back into the ocean. Oh yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. Has it seemed like there's been an increase in hurricanes and is that, uh, oh, yeah. related to oh, yeah. climate change? 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, I went through 
a category five hurricane. I wasn't, I evacuated, but I went through a category five hurricane. And three years later, I had a category three come by my house. I've had category ones come right over our house. And this is in a five-year span where it seems like every year we're getting a category five hitting where you look back 10, 20 years, those were storms of a lifetime, not a every other year, or every year storm. And yeah. obviously that has to do with rising ocean temperatures. The hotter the water is, the more intensified the hurricane's going to become. So I know this is kind of off topic, but I've always wondered like what it's like to live through a hurricane. So <laughs> if you if a hurricane is coming, you can't stay at your house, right? Like no. or do you have to go somewhere or what, what how does this whole thing happen? Like what is it like? Yeah leading uh, up can, to a hurricane and <laughs> i can talk from like personal experiences um we had a hurricane come through and we usually don't get too worried about a hurricane until it gets around the three four level mm -hmm. and i remember i went to bed and it was at like a two or a three and i wake up in the morning and it was at a four oh, it, wow. it rapidly intensified overnight once it entered the gulf of mexico and it hit that warm water, it jumped up a whole nother category. And I remember, because we have to drive over a bridge, and you can't drive over the bridge if the winds are too high. So mm -hmm. I remember getting as much as I could and just getting my parents, and we all left from there. And then I was in college about three hours away. So we stayed where I was staying in college, and we just kind of – wrote it out. I had a buddy of mine who was in the Coast Guard and they sent a ship over and it was kind of surreal because my buddy was on the, the Coast Guard cutter and he's texting me and he's like, hey, that beach restaurant that we went to last month, yeah, that's in the water. It's it's going Jesus. underwater right now. It's washed away. And so it was like surreal things were happening like that. And mind you, this is uh, category four and five hitting it. So this is no small storm. And I remember the day after, a couple of my friends did stay. And they went to the airport and got a little Cessna airplane. And my friend mm -hmm. was had a big digital camera and was just taking photos of where he knew his friend's houses were. So I get a text from my friend of a picture, and you could still see my parents' house standing somehow. And mind you, we were a quarter mile away from the ocean. I can't even see the ocean from my parents' house. And we still got seven feet of water. Jesus. Yeah. Um, so it, it all felt very surreal. You, We got lucky. We didn't get as much wind damage as the town next to us because that town was completely devastated, wiped out, looked like a bomb went off and knocked everything out. But our side got all the water damage, unfortunately. So where was this at? Florida, Texas? Uh, Florida. Florida? Man, I can only imagine what that's like. And then the aftermath of having to rebuild after that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's yeah, weird. It's wild. Yeah. It was so, weird because a, a lot of it was like personal items. Because luckily my parents' house was on stilts. But mm. we still had storage underneath. So a lot of it was like family pictures and stuff that all just washed out onto the road. So you're... Mm just picking up all your stuff while people are just driving by, taking pictures, news is coming by, and it just kind of felt weird. You're, like, exposed almost. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. 
So climate change, what needs to be done to, I don't know if we can prevent it at this point, but at least to mitigate the effects of climate change? Yeah. So like I said, it's looking towards these renewable green energies, looking towards sustainable practices that we can do in our everyday. And that's not saying don't stop eating burgers. Don't stop eating. I mean, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where the average American stops eating his burger and stops doing that because of climate change, but we can take small steps to mitigate it. And those small steps over, you know, hundreds of years will slow it down to a manageable level. Um, Just being more conscious on what we do has an impact and how it impacts the wildlife, not just here, but around the world. What is some emerging like technology or solutions that can help with mitigating climate change? I sometimes hear about things like um, climate capture, not climate capture, carbon capture. Are you familiar with that? And um, I'm not too familiar with the carbon capture. I know a lot of um, state parks and wildlife refuges, they have carbon monitoring devices and air quality monitoring devices and rain capture monitoring devices that are testing the acidity of the rain and what chemicals are in the air. I I worked on that for about a year and a half on one of those projects. Um, Mm -hmm. I know a couple companies have worked on developing types of boats that kind of just almost like a ferry and it just collects trash. Um, a lot of these nonprofits, like Four Ocean, has been really popular, and they've worked with a lot of these developing nations on education and cleaning up their uh, trash. Um, I'm trying to think of wider, other than just trash issues. I mean, obviously, we're monitoring sea level rise, ocean acidification, and there's tests, and there's what's the word I guess data capture points all throughout the ocean that is monitoring all these things. Um, what I is, think, oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. You're good. I was going to say uh, ocean acidification. I heard you mention that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. What, what is that? And what is contributing? Is it just trash or climate change? Um, that's driving it. Uh, pollution is a major issue and it's basically, as we're polluting the air, that pollution then is collected in the rain clouds and it makes rain more acidic and then rain falls into the water and raises the pH levels of the water. And I don't know if you've ever had a saltwater tank, coral will just die off if you look at it the wrong way because the pH ba- balance fell off. Because um, these, these animals have lived without these changes. Yes, the earth has changed, but we're talking on a scale of thousands and millions of years, we had slow changes, not within the last 50 years, we're seeing all these changes. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but are you looking to reach a dynamic and engaged audience of curious minds? Well, look no further. Bright Brains Podcast is the perfect platform to showcase your business or product. You'll be able to reach a diverse, intelligent audience and engage with listeners passionate about personal development, technology, and more. Elevate your brand through thought-provoking discussions. 
don't miss this opportunity to promote your business on one of the fastest growing podcasts in the market. Contact us today to discuss advertising options and elevate your brand to the next level. Contact us at brightbrainspod at gmail.com to secure your advertising spot on Bright Brains today. Again, that's Bright Brains with a Z pod pod at gmail.com. Now back to the podcast. So Coral, that's an important part of the marine ecosystem. Can you talk more about the role Coral plays? Yeah. It's not my field and I have a pretty surface level knowledge on it, but the best way I can describe it is you have to almost think of the ocean like a desert. Uh And then a coral reef is like an oasis in the desert. So it attracts everything to it. And then these coral reefs almost become like a small city and it supports so much biodiversity and it's, it's almost like the, it's the building block for everything coastal wise. Um, also, coral is a massive help when it comes to hurricanes and mitigating hurricane damage. Um, those are probably the big two roles it plays that I understand from a surface level. Obviously, that's a completely different field from what I'm used to. Um I know it's really pretty to look at when you go scuba diving. <laughs> yeah. So I often hear about the great coral reef and how it's in danger. Um, is that anything, do you know anything about that? Or um, I know the barrier reef is experiencing a bleaching event and a really good documentary I can recommend to a lot of people is uh, Chasing Coral on Netflix. Mm-hmm. That's a really good documentary that's looking into using different technology like cameras and long-term monitoring using different camera technology to monitor how coral is bleaching throughout a seasonal event. Um, definitely. I mean, the, the bleaching of coral in the great barrier reef is kind of like watching New York city just slowly die away. I mean, it's such a big system, such a big ecosystem that supports so much and also keeps a lot of this erosion damage from storms keeps it at bay for the coastal towns that it protects. So are we close to the point of no return when it comes to like protecting and re- and preserving uh, oceanic life? I don't think so. I try, not think to so? Be, I, I try not to be a pessimist because this is a pretty depressing field to get into sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think there's any point in saving it or at least trying then i could definitely go into a different field and make a lot more money than what i make now um yeah but i definitely think we can change and make small changes like i was saying before that will build up to bigger changes on a long-term level i think obviously we're learning more and more every day and challenging what we believe in and how we see certain ways of conserving wildlife in the ocean specifically. So I think every day we get closer and a better understanding. And I don't think we'll fully ever understand it. 
Um, are there any successful marine conservation projects or initiatives that you um, find particularly noteworthy? I like um, the lionfish invasive movement down in South Florida. Um, lionfish is a highly invasive fish. It has no natural predators in South Florida. And the state and federal government got a lot of these spearfishers and anglers, and they set up um, fishing tournaments and offered cash prizes to kill this many fish. And it got really successful. And then when it really blew up is when people realized how good it was to eat lionfish. And we've seen a, a pretty dramatic drop off of lionfish population. And I mean, a lion, a single lionfish can almost eat everything off of a deep water reef. So that's hmm. a really good project. I like, um, we're see we are seeing a good manatee population rebound within the last 50 years. Um, we recorded a record high of manatees in the state of Florida last year or year before. Um, trying to think. Um, I mean, shark finning has gone down to such a dramatic rate and just the way that the entire world views sharks compared to just 30, 40 years ago when Jaws came out is such a drastic change. And it goes back to the way that scientists are communicating with the public and as cheesy as it sounds, I think Shark Week did have a big impact on how the public views sharks. And there is plenty of cheesy stuff when you watch Shark Week, especially nowadays. But I think a lot of those have been good success stories. So you want to talk about how to break into the field. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that, about what it takes to get into that field and there are is the marine biology field, are they looking for more people to get into that line of work? Um, obviously, it is a pretty oversaturated field. I'm not going to lie about that. And every time I talk to someone, they always, I mean, it seems like one out of five people always tells me, yeah, I wish I was a marine biologist or I always wanted to be a marine biologist, but I never did it because I thought it was too hard or there's too much math. And this and that and or they always say oh it didn't pay enough and I definitely can understand that um but I grew up in a landlocked state and really I think that probably made me want to be a marine biologist more and more and I went through college and I took my classes I did my internships and um one thing I have to say what helped me get one of my first jobs is I tried to do things, get different skills, get more hard skills because everyone's coming out of college with the same piece of paper as I am. So the best way I thought that I could separate myself is I started doing, you know, short films and getting into short film work and doing stuff like that and working with conservation companies and doing interviews and making short little snippet things for them and uh, that's what got me my first job in the field is because they saw that and they said, Oh, that's unique and we can use that. So why don't we hire this guy on? And then another thing I see when I've been in the field and I see new marine biologists is a lot of them don't know. I wouldn't say basic skills, but they don't know how to back in a boat and granted not every marine biologist is doing that. A lot of marine biologists are lab-based or even computer-based. There's a huge 
um, coding element to a lot of marine biological work. It's not all just jumping in the water and go scuba diving. Um, but a lot of skills like that, backing in a trailer, kind of understanding how to drive a boat. Can you drive a boat? Understanding simple boat mechanic work. Um, stuff like that is a lot of what jobs are looking for nowadays. They want you to be a jack of all trades. They don't just want you to be knowledgeable on the marine biology field. They want you to also know these hard skills and how to do things outside of just marine biology work. Um, and I've been lucky somehow I haven't had to get my master's yet and I somehow made it in the field. I'm definitely lucky for that. And I'm definitely planning on getting my master's pretty soon, but somehow I've avoided that. What, what will you be getting <laughs> your master's in? um, I'm looking more at like a marine ecology degree, uh, more of a, a wide perspective on marine environments. All right. Now, you said earlier that the field is oversaturated. Was that sarcasm or is it really oversaturated? Oh yeah, it's definitely oversaturated. Really? Huh. Yeah. I, I never would have thought that. So it's a lot of people going into this field. Yeah. And it's, is there a lot of competition for jobs? Oh yeah. Oh Yeah, yeah. that's My interesting. while well, my coworker has his PhD and we're the same job level. Oh, wow. That's So interesting, man. Yeah, if you go into this field, you definitely have to have a real passion for this kind of work. Yeah, and it it always doesn't pay the most. Yeah. And it, it depends on where you work out of and um if you want to do private, if you want to do government work or nonprofit work. What is the pay like? Obviously, I don't want you to give any of uh, your personal information, Yeah. but like ballpark, are they like making like 40, 50K a year, like the average, like? If you get with the feds, you can get starting out around 40 and work up to 70. And then if you ever want to become a manager, you can really start making money. But then you're a manager. You're not doing the field work. And that's what I've noticed a lot of people that they'll stop right there kind of at that 50 $60,000 range because they want to stay in the field. They want to keep doing that work. They don't want to, you know, get stuck behind a desk and only get out in the field once a couple months. Um, so if you're willing to work, you know, behind a desk, and that's where a lot of the work is done is in policy change and advocating to politicians and getting all the data put in. And I do my fair share of data entry and data analysis. I wish I was in the field every single day, but I'm not. How can individuals contribute to marine conservation in their daily lives? Um, the biggest thing I tell everyone is just educate yourself. There's nothing wrong with watching a good marine documentary and understanding a little more about a certain species or whatever topic that really interests you and sharing that passion and knowledge with other friends because then they might really get into it and share that passion as well. And then once you become knowledgeable, you'll start looking at things and saying, hmm, I really wonder where the fish that I'm going to eat from this restaurant came from or at the supermarket. I wonder where this cut of salmon came from or should I really be eating this species of fish because their habitat is in peril? Um, things like that. I mean, I'm not saying everyone needs to have like an encyclopedic knowledge of every fish that they see swimming by them, but Um, just knowing a little bit more about what fish you're eating and how it's impacting the environment. And then obviously trying to be a little more mindful of 
how much we're wasting on a daily basis. Um, when I was in college, I talked to a lot of foreign exchange students and it was almost like culture shock that they could not believe how much food Americans waste yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. They, they could not believe it. And that's what they said that um, is a major issue that they foresee as a food waste in America. Yeah. You know, I used to work in kitchens and it's crazy. It's like the food that they throw away is perfectly good. I'm like, at least like go to a homeless shelter yeah. or something and give that food away. But they can't even do that. They could like get in trouble and lose yeah, their job. Yeah, that's a lot against that. Yeah, which is totally wild to me, man. What role does international collaboration play in addressing global marine conservation challenges? I mean, that's what's so unique with this field is that, I mean, the fish swim all over the world. You know, you could mm -hmm. protect one fish species off the coast of America, but then it's going to migrate to a different country and then get overfished over there. So you have to work with other countries, governments. Obviously, I don't do that on my daily basis. Managers and higher ups do that. And from what I've heard, you know, you have to understand cultural differences when you're talking and certain things like that could come across offensive that we're telling you that you cannot harvest a fish that's been culturally significant to your religion or just your culture in general. Um, so those are definitely things you have to understand when you're looking at a management perspective of marine systems and fisheries in general. Um, but collaboration is always good. Other countries do things differently. And as a scientific community, I'm always excited to see how a certain person enters in their data or collects data for this study. Um, so we try and be pretty transparent as far as that. Um, I always enjoy working with other people. What about Japan? I know this is something I don't really know much about, mm -hmm. but I know like they do a lot of whaling over there and they seem to have a different kind of, we talk about cultural differences. They seem to have a different sort of cultural outlook when it comes to fishing and uh, whaling and things like that. And I'm often, often see them kind of portrayed uh, in a negative light when it comes to this kind of uh, aspect. Do you, do you know anything about that? Or... Yeah. Um, I understand that, you know, they're an Island. Most of their culture mm -hmm. is going to be based around seafood. Mm -hmm. um, the foreign exchange students that I was talking about, they were from Japan. Um, I had a lot of, Japanese foreign exchange students in my uh, marine biology classes. Mm. Um, I definitely think just like we have people over here who are polluting the environment and, you know, doing all these horrible things to the environment, there's people in other countries that are also doing that. And a lot of time this meat isn't always transparently sold as whale meat or dolphin meat. Um, and it also comes back to just a, a cultural difference that they have compared to us as Americans have over here is we have the luxury of having all this farmland and the ability to rely on that rather than relying on the ocean for our food. Um, and I know that Japan is working really hard against a lot of these uh, anti-environmental poachers and everything. But I'm not 100% sure, and I'm not completely up to date on it. I do remember watching Whale Wars a lot when I was little. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I was just trying to remember 
what that was. While you were talking, I was on my phone trying to <laughs> figure out what is the name of that organization that's in that, you know, I'm talking about, it's called Sea Something. Uh, they're the guys that chase after the whaling ships and yeah, they're, and things. They're, the show was called Whale Wars. I forget. Mm-hmm. And their boat was like the Steve Irwin was one of them. Yeah. What was that name? Sea Shepherd. Yeah, that's it. Sea Shepherd. I was just trying to Google yep. that, trying to figure it out. Well, what's your opinion on them? Are they doing good work? Are are they just a nuisance? Or what's your opinion? Um, I don't know. It's it's a double edged sword because they definitely brought to light mm-hmm. in a public sense what's going on. Um, is there better ways that we can do it? Yes. Do those ways take a lot longer? And that's a lot of red tape through government work. Yes. Um, is what they're doing legal? No. So, um, do they believe what they're doing is right? A hundred percent. And I think that's all that matters to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where it feels good, you know, yeah. but and, is it really doing good? And I, I think that is also a big issue we have in the conservation field right now mm-hmm. is, I mean, I feel like everyone's talked to the person who, you know, they'll be like, I can't believe you're using a plastic straw and they'll chew you out for using grocery bags. But then you see them jump into their like Hummer that gets 12 miles to the gallon. And so I think there's a lot of that in the field right now, especially is the the feel good conservation work where, you know, I didn't use a plastic straw today, so I've completely saved every sea turtle in the water. Yeah. Um, so that that's definitely an issue with the conservation field, I think. What are some things that you would like to achieve in your career before it's all said and done? Um, I just want to see a better communication from scientists to the public in general. I think that's yeah. kind of been a major setback in the conservation field, especially with how climate change and the, the term global warming was spread around in the early 2000s. I think mm. that's that kind of set back a lot of public perception on scientists as a whole. So I would like to see, you know, personally work towards having a better perception of how people view conservation and climate science and all that. Yeah, you know, the thing about global warming, right, is, you know, so you mentioned about how the term global warming set it back. And I understand where you're coming from, because, you know, a lot of times, especially on the Internet, you know, there'll be some boomer will make a post and be like, you know, it just snowed 10 inches today. Uh, So much for global warming or something like that. And it's like, my God, man, that's not what they mean. I mean, climate change. But. Yeah, I think that, you know, these corporations, you know, they muddy up a lot of the communication between scientists and the public. So even if the term global warming had never happened, there would have still been some kind of uh, miscommunication. There still would be people saying, like, for example, the term climate change, there'll be people out there who will probably have an issue with that, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, it's fall, the leaves are still turning brown, so much (laughs) for climate change, or it's summer and it's 90 degrees out, so much for climate change. So 
it's just ignorant people out there. And, you know, and this is something you probably know more about, about how a lot of these corporations, the oil industry and things like that, they knew about this kind of stuff back in the 80s and 90s, but they intentionally kept it secret. And they also promote a lot of anti-science agenda to keep people in the dark because they still want to keep money. They want to keep making money. Maybe am I oversimplifying the thing or is there um, more to it? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they're a company and their goal is to make money and they're going to do whatever they can to make that money. No matter how morally gray, what they do is sometimes um, there for sure is the, um, the running joke sometimes is do you sell your soul to the oil company and get paid, you know, $200,000 a year to do their research, but you know, it's just going to get manipulated in the way you present yeah. it. Um, yeah. I mean, corporations are, in, and I know the terms starting to come up a lot is greenwashing mm. where they'll put a cardboard container around the old plastic container and say yeah. it's, you know, plastic free or, you know, so, and that's what I was talking earlier about that feel good environmentalism and, Corporations have definitely seen that and they're seeing how they can make money off of that, even though they are trying to look like the good guys. And exactly. Yeah. It 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 is frustrating. I definitely agree that there is going to always be ignorant people. And you know, every time I see people from my hometown post a picture like, see, it's snowing so much for global warming. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, that actually is a case of climate change that the Arctic winds are warming up and rather than staying contained in the north they're getting pushed lower and lower into the united states and that's why we're seeing these massive snowstorms and yes it's always snowed in that area but it hasn't just dumped a foot of snow overnight you know it's this it's these ex- aggressive and extreme impacts we're seeing you know speaking of greenwashing one thing i learned that just kind of made me this go do like a backflip was, you know, we were talking about these straws earlier, these paper straws, mm-hmm. you know, the paper straws still have plastic in them. Yep. Yeah. So it's just like, <laughs> what, what's the point, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's wild. But um, one so thing I just got really yeah. cracked me up. I was at a restaurant and I was with my parents and like, they got straws and like, see, it says a hundred percent recycled paper on the straw uh, wrapper. And then you open up the wrapper and it's a plastic straw inside. It's saying oh, the wrapper yeah. itself is 100% recycled paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or right, what gets me is, I remember one time I went and got a paper straw at a restaurant, but the paper straw was in a plastic wrapper. You know, it wasn't even in a paper wrapper. <laughs> oh so God. it's like, yeah, it's just like, man, you know, it's crazy. So let me ask you this, man. Let's say the president came to you and was like, Hey, you know, I, I heard your interview on the bright brains podcast before I leave office, I'm going to do one thing that you want done and whatever you want done, we'll do it. No matter the money or the cost, what would you want done? Ooh, that's a great question. I'm trying to think of something that would have the, <clears throat> the largest impact to the most amount um i mean i would just personally and it's probably from a selfish background i I would just increase funding to a lot of these government organizations that work with the environment and 
you know, I've read things and this could just be a conspiracy theory that a lot of your more conservative states will pay biologists a lot less because that leads to them not getting the best of the best applying to those jobs. And then, you know, certain environmental issues kind of fall to the wayside because you're not getting the best. Um, I mean, selfishly, I'd say more funding for your conservation groups and organizations that do the work. Um, I definitely think that more money needs to be put into, I think coral reef monitoring. I think if yeah. we can really get a handle on this, because like I said earlier, coral reefs are the bedrock. They're the, the first thing that really anchors in the environment. They have so many economical impacts. You know, people come from all over the world to go scuba diving down in the Florida Keys and see the coral reefs down there. Um, it protects the area from hurricane damages and tidal flooding. Um, and it provides such a good impact for marine life to thrive and prosper, which in turn brings in more tourism. So it's kind yeah. of a win-win, I think. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to ask, uh, cruise ships often oh, hear yeah. that like cruise ships have a huge negative impact on ocean life. Uh, what is the impact that they have and what is it that they do exactly? I think to my understanding, it's mostly just the amount of CO2 that they're emitting. Mm -hmm. um, they're not efficient. They're burning a ton of fossil fuels while you're out to sea. Um, it, it, brings a lot of the ecotourism that's not always there for the environment they're just there you know they'll trample coral they'll do not the best stuff to native habitats when they're out to port and in these areas um i'm sure that they dump out in international waters i'm sure they throw trash in the sea i'm sure they're dumping their cooking grease and all this other stuff that i couldn't even imagine I know earlier you said you don't like to be a pessimist. So what is it that gives you hope? Um, I see a lot of people that are passionate for it. I talk to a lot of people who, you know, wish we were doing more, wish we were doing better. And a lot of people that are interested in this field. And I see a, a future for sure. I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. And I also think that's kind of, within the last five years where we've, as a scientific community, we're trying to raise the alarm bells and we're maybe freaking people out about all the things that could happen. And yes, a lot of that's backed up by data and research and it could happen, but it might not happen. It, You know, I definitely think there has to be a light at the end of the tunnel or what are we working towards? And we are seeing, you know, positive impacts and we are seeing certain species recover and become established again in their native habitat. That's awesome. So I guess before it's been about an hour, so I mm -hmm. guess it's time to go and just wrap it up. But what I want to ask is where can people go to learn more? And also, do you have anything to promote yourself? Yeah. Um, as far as learning more, um, trying to think of the chasing coral documentary is probably one of the best places to really start out and it's 
really great documentary to educate yourself and understand the pressing issues that coral reefs are facing nowadays. And it also um, highlights a pretty interesting new technology of how we're using cameras to monitor coral reefs and underwater systems a little more accurately. Um, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau documentaries. While they might not be the most um, scientifically correct and accurate things, I think it really can inspire a love and interest in the sea and marine conservation in general. Um, I always love reading books. Um, trying to think. Follow your local government, your local conservation government, your fish and wildlife or whoever. Follow them on Instagram, Facebook, or whatever social media and see what they're up to and see if there's any ways that you can volunteer your free time. There's always different ways that people can volunteer and help out. Awesome. All right, Dan. What about yourself? Do you have anything to promote? Oh, yeah. If you like what I said today and you want something completely opposite, um, I do have a podcast where me and my old college roommate have reconnected. And while we're reconnecting, we're reviewing different types of hard seltzers. And because there's always a new hard seltzer coming out and they all look horrendous. So yeah, me and my old they... friend decided to... Uh, taste as much and see if you should try them too they're bad <laughs> that, and that yeah, they it taste horrendous content. yeah it makes great content <laughs> yeah. um, it's called low self-esteem uh l-o-w-s-e-l-t-z dash esteem e-s-t-e-e-m awesome all right then so i'll definitely check that out and pretty sure my audience will too yeah so this has been a great conversation joe um i really appreciate you coming on here and talking about this and you've definitely enlightened me and you've given me some hope as well for the future of marine life so uh thanks a lot great glad i could uh inspire some people and give a little hope out there hey no problem you have a nice day man take it you easy too. all right that's a wrap Thank you for joining us for another enlightening conversation here on Bright Brains. I hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration to fuel your own bright ideas. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform or however else you listen to this podcast. Also, we can be found on all major social media. Just type in Bright Brains with a Z. And remember, the brightest minds are those that never stop seeking knowledge.